Uh, good morning. Uh, we're so glad you chose to tune in with us this morning, whether you're in your living room, your bedroom, uh, just wherever you might be. Uh, we're glad to get to worship with you this morning. Hey, so we're super excited. We're actually finishing up a series uh, today that we've been in several months called This Is Us, and we're going to look at yet another value that is so critical to the environment that we uh, find ourselves in these days, to the uncertainty that's there, um, and it's this. We articulate this value this way. We're talking about biblical authority, and here's the way we say it. We say, we will stay centered on God's Word by holding the Bible above us as our authority as we help everyone understand and apply it. Now, when it comes to the Bible, application is everything. And listen, there are a lot of books in the world, but there is nothing in the world like this book. This book, or the first half of it anyway, so defined the nation of Israel that they called themselves, they were known as being a people of the book. I mean, other countries were known for other things, right? Maybe for their power, their armies, maybe for their commerce or their industry. But Israel was known to be a people of the book. And to help his or her child uh, learn the book was every parent's greatest responsibility. To be able to grow up and teach the book, to become a rabbi, that was the greatest ambition. Let me give you an example of just how much Israel loved the book. When a young man would fall in love and want to get married to a young woman, in order to uh, kind of ascertain whether this young man was worthy of the bride in this culture, worthy of their daughter, the custom was that uh, the parents of the bride would give the prospective groom a test. And it was a, a test of their knowledge. They called it the Tanakh. Uh, just to see if he deserved the bride. And so the more uh, beautiful this young woman was, the more intelligent she was, the more desirable, the more wealthy her family, then the better uh, that the groom had to met, do on this test called the Tanakh. In fact, it was really the only education system where if you pass this test, you would actually lose your bachelor's degree. Did you see what I did there? Don't roll your eyes, don't groan, come on, that hurts my feelings, it really does, stop it. Anyway, one day a man named Jesus came into the world and he loved the book. Uh, the first time we see him as a boy, right? he's at the temple and he's talking um, with and teaching the book. Uh, he's asking questions about the book, which is what rabbis did. They asked questions, right? The first time that we see Jesus as an adult, he's being led in, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness, right? Satan tempts him three times. What does he do? All three occasions, he uh, quotes the book. He's just so immersed in it the next time we see him he's beginning his ministry right he's going into a local synagogue and he quotes again from the book even on the last day of his life he's hanging on a cross 
going through a kind of torture of body, mind, and soul that I can't even imagine. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what he's doing there? He's quoting the book. That's Psalm 22. So we see Jesus, you know, um, our first description of Jesus sees Jesus quoting the book. And our last has Jesus quoting the book. And as a rabbi, he spent every day in between teaching and living this book. The rabbis used to say this about the book. They would say, read the book, know the book, love the book, do the book, live the book, die the book. Now, uh, many people don't realize the claims that this amazing book makes for itself. And I want to make sure you're familiar with a couple of those. One of them is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And here's what uh, this author writes. He says, all scripture, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament, right, is breathed out by God. In other words, it represents the words of God on the page. It's breathed out by God, and therefore it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see here that the Word of God does two things, right? It makes us complete in Christ and it equips us to serve Him, to be used by Him, to perform good works. Uh, But again, I I don't want us to miss the claim. Some versions say here that um, it is inspired by God. The ESV, and I like it better, it's more literal, says it's literally breathed out. The words on the page represent the very breath, the very speech of God. And then look at this one, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. An amazing claim. says, for the word of God is living and active, so in other words, when we interact with God's Word, that's, we're interacting with something living, something that's alive. And therefore, it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So this is an amazing claim. God's Word isn't some inert thing on a page. When we take it in, it begins to live and move and breathe within us, right? The Word of God is living when it lives in us. It is active. It pierces the heart and it challenges the mind and the will. Like yeast in bread. When the Word of God makes its way into my, uh, into my life, it transforms me, right? In the same way that a yeast, a little yeast, might transform a whole vat of dough, the Word of God begins to transform me from the inside out. And then James issues an amazing warning about the Word of God, and I love it. We're going to really think a lot about this today. Here's what James says. He says, don't just listen to the Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. Now listen, James is telling us something so important here. He's telling us that when we engage with the Bible, we have to engage uh, in the Bible transformationally 
not just informationally. We have to engage with our Bible for transformation, not just for information. You know, I said earlier that when it comes to the Bible, application is everything. Doing is what matters, not just hearing or even knowing, right? And sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, you know, pastor, you know, I want to go deep in the Bible. I want Bible study that is deep. And what they mean is they want new information. They want uh, they want to learn something they didn't know before. But the Bible, James makes this very clear. Jesus makes this very clear. The Bible isn't just given to us to give us information. It's given to us for purposes of transformation, life change, doing, not just hearing. So maybe we need a new definition for deep. You know, it's deep, husbands, when we love our wives as Christ loved the church, doing is deep. It's deep, wives, when we show respect to our husbands. Because deep is doing, right? It's deep, friends, when we bear with one another. That's deep. Doing is deep. Forgiveness is always deep. One of my old seminary professors, a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks, used to say this. He would say, most Christians are educated far beyond their own level of obedience. In other words, he's saying, hey, if we just applied what little bit of the Bible that we knew, if we just did those things, our lives would be changed and transformed forever, right? But often we know so much, but we we don't always do. We hear a lot, but we don't always do. And here's what James is saying. He's saying that God wants to use this book to change people, to transform their lives. And, and so the book that God has used to change and shape the world, he wants to use that same book to change and shape you. Let me give you one example of this. We're going to look at a, an amazing passage. It's Ephesians chapter 5. And we're told in this uh, context that, uh, you know, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But then he uh, begins to talk about something I want us to see. Here's what he says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And here's the phrase we're going to focus on. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless so how does God present you and I uh, to himself how does Jesus present you and I to himself uh, without blemish or stain or wrinkle in other words perfect blameless how does he do that he does it by cleansing us through the washing with the water of the word now, um, why would Paul say that? I mean, the answer lies in why we would ever wash something in the first place. Why, right? I mean, why do we? Why do you and I ever wash anything in the first place? Paul is telling us that we have minds that need to be cleansed regularly and that need to be purified. Listen, our minds, yours 
and mine are almost always cluttered with false beliefs and bad attitudes and deadly feelings and twisted intentions and misguided perceptions. That's what goes on inside all of our minds, right? The truth about you and the truth about me is that we have minds that need to be continually washed and continually renewed, continually filtered, continually purified. We have minds that need to be challenged. Now, True confessions of a pastor. This is how this sometimes looks for, looks for me. I'll just tell you how my mind sometimes works, and maybe you'll relate. Maybe not, but maybe you will. You know, I'm driving in my car, and I see a person with a sign who wants money on the side of the road. And a thought will just kind of pop up there, right? Well, you know, he, he's kind of dirty. And being, looking over and seeing him here makes me feel a little uncomfortable. So not only will I not give him any money, I'm not going to make eye contact with this guy because I might feel an obligation or I might feel a little bit guilty, right? Now, I didn't plan on having that thought. I didn't want to have it. It's just there. I go into a convenience store and there's a line of people. There's a clerk who just seems kind of slow or, you know, not very into her job, right? I'm in a hurry. So the first kind of things that come to my mind are, you know, why can't they hire somebody who's willing to work a little bit faster? You know, why don't they train their workers better? I mean, I've got things to do and places to go, right? Or maybe I'll get in a line and then I'll kind of pay attention. I'll, I'll choose a line based on which one looks shorter. And then I'll kind of see if the, which of the three lines, you know, the line to my left, my line, or the line to my right, which one's moving faster. And I might even get a little angry when my line doesn't win that race, right? Maybe my mind works like this. I'm reading the Bible, you know, early in the morning. And I have an insight into what I'm reading. And so my next thought is, you know, hey, I'm going to meet with this group of people later on this morning and I can share this thought with them and they're going to be like impressed. And, uh, you know, they're going to go, man, Pastor Brad is such a spiritual guy. And the irony of that is, you know, it might even be a verse on the importance of humility. But this is the way our minds sometimes work, right? Maybe I serve my wife. I do something nice or kind for her. But then I begin to think that maybe she should do something nice for me in return. And I take that hope and I make it an expectation. Friends, these are just a few of the thoughts that I have. And they're just a little bit dirty. But I have thoughts that are a lot darker than those. But here's the deal. Those thoughts equip me for bad works. They make bad feelings and bad behaviors inevitable. And you know, part of the superficiality of a lot of the self-help literature of our day, you know, hey, you know, you, know, you can think the power of positivity or whatever it might be, uh, but the idea behind a lot of the self-help literature is, look, you can choose whatever thoughts and attitudes you want to have. And while that is certainly sometimes true, the reality is, no, you can't. 
I mean, maybe for a moment, by willpower, you might be able to override a thought here or a thought there. But as a general rule, the patterns of thoughts that you and I have, what goes into our minds, are deeply, deeply rooted and grouped together. And you don't usually just wake up one day and say, I'm going to choose a different attitude. No, our minds, yours and mine, need to be renewed daily. They need to be washed daily. So whenever I come to the Scripture, whenever I engage with Jesus in God's Word, I go into it asking Him to change my mind, to challenge my thoughts, right? To remove my toxic attitudes, the lies that I believe and and am sometimes tempted to live out of, and the sinful thoughts that pollute my mind and my life. So when we come to God's Word, what we're doing is we're saying, look, I'm going to let the thoughts of Jesus filter through into my mind so that His thoughts become my thoughts, right? And so imagine, what would it look like for you to have a mind that was cleansed of all the garbage that weighs you down? I mean, do you ever think about that? Because here's the truth, you won't want it unless you start thinking about how good it could be. Imagine that when you're with another person, your first thought is to bless them and to love them. Not what you can get out of them or how you could manipulate them. Even if they're difficult, that's your first thought. How can I love this person? How can I bless this person today? Imagine that if you're challenged during the day, instead of caving to fear or inadequacy or uh, uh, the feeling of being out of control, right? Imagine that your first thought would be, I've got a great big God and there is nothing in all creation, not even a virus, that can separate me from his great love. So your first thought in the day isn't fear or uncertainty. It's God, let's do this together. I know I don't have to live a moment of my life apart from you and your love. I want you to imagine for a minute that if, if you're a man, right, that when you look at any woman who's not your wife, that you would look at her as a sister or as a daughter and not just a body. And, you know, that's what it would be like to have a mind, you know, that's been washed by the water of the Word. And this is precisely why we devote ourselves to the Word. Listen, your default mode and mine is toward things like uh, self-centeredness, anxiety, small and petty thoughts, greedy thoughts, manipulative thoughts. So we come to the Word and we say, Jesus, would you cleanse my mind? Would you wash my mind through the water of the Word every single day? Because I want to have thoughts that are true and bold and courageous and deep, right? Friends, that's the beginning of the road to transformation. The goal of engaging with Scripture is transformation. It's not just information. Now, as we articulate this value and we talk about centering ourselves in God's Word and holding the Bible above us as our authority, um, I want to talk about that for just a moment. What, I'm, what we're saying when we, when we talk about holding the Bible above us as our authority is that we have to be willing to allow the Bible to challenge us, to disagree with us. Here's what I'm telling you. If you don't trust the Bible enough 
to uh, let it challenge and correct your thinking, you won't be able to have a personal relationship with God. Think about this for a minute. Let's connect those dots. In any truly personal relationship, in an intimate relationship, right, the other person in that relationship has to be able to contradict you. They have to be able to disagree with you. They have to be able to challenge you. Uh, in fact, the challenge of intimacy is learning how to do that with one another, right? For example, if a wife isn't allowed to disagree with or contradict her husband, they'll never have a relationship of intimacy. And likewise, if a husband isn't allowed to challenge or contradict or disagree with his wife, there can be no intimacy because what intimacy is, at least in a marriage, is two people learning how to come at life from different perspectives and maybe even how to disagree with one another, but still be close and supportive and loving. Anybody remember, there were actually two movies. There was one that came out in the 70s and then another that came out in, oh, maybe around 2004. But there were two movies called The Stepford Wives. And the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross their will, right? So a Stepford wife was compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe a relationship with a robot as intimate or personal. So what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sense, uh, your sensibility or crosses your will, right? What I'm asking you is this, if you pick and choose what you will or won't believe and then you reject everything else, how will you ever have a God that can contradict you? You won't. Uh, you will have a Stepford God. You will have a God essentially of your own making, but, but certainly not a God with whom you can have a relationship in which he challenges you, contradicts you, and grows you. Uh, this is from Tim Keller. This is a quote from his book, The Reason for God, and I think this is so good. He says this, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So here's what we're saying. We're saying this, that an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. Because unless God is allowed to disagree with you or challenge you or contradict you, you're not in a relationship of intimacy with him at all. And this leads me to my second point. I've said already, right, we want to, read, we want to engage with the Bible for transformation, not just information. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But now I want to issue you a second challenge and that is this you want to read the bible relationally not just informationally i want to say it again read the bible 
relationally, not just informationally. Listen, the reason we come to Scripture is that we might engage with our God. This is what makes uh, the reading of the Bible different than every other kind of book, right? The book is given so that we might get to know uh, the author better. So we want to engage in the Bible relationally every time that we come to it. Now, uh, several months ago, I actually saw a, a clip of, of a teacher talking about this very point. And his name is Keith Farron. Uh, he was teaching in this clip in a children's conference. So he's talking to children's ministers from all over the country. And I just want you to watch about a nine-minute clip of what Keith has to say because he says this far better than I ever could. So uh, let's hear from Keith. Bible relationally, not informationally. Read the Bible with the primary purpose of hanging out with Jesus, not learning about him. Ever since I was little, I would hear people say, the Bible is like the owner's manual of your car. Some of you have used that. It's like the owner's manual of your car, but it tells you how to live. It's the owner's manual for life. I'm begging you, don't ever use that analogy again. Some of you are like, but that's my Sunday school lesson. <laughs> I'm glad I have an owner's manual of my car when I want to know what size the light bulb I need, what the maintenance intervals are and all that. I'm, it's a helpful tool. I'm guessing that some of you are glad that you have an owner's manual to your car. Have you ever longed to fall in love with the author? This is the only book that has been written with the sole purpose of drawing into relationship with its author. The purpose of this book is relational, not informational. Think of it, think of when you hang out with somebody, like, what's your name? Jude? June like the month. I'm just going to call you June for short. Okay. <laughs> June like the month. Ju so June, where do you live? New York. New York. So you totally understood my grandmother. Good. So let's say that I moved to New York and did not become a Yankees fan. I moved to New York. June and I hit it off. We realized we had some things in common, and we decided we were going to get together for a cup of coffee once a week. Over the course of the weeks to come, would June and I learn some information about each other? Right? We learned some things like, I don't know if he's married. He can see, this is me, married. And I uh, don't know if he's got kids. I, I do have kids, and we don't know. I, we would learn some things. What music do you like? Are you into sports? Are you into technology? Do you like gadgets? Do you like social media? Do you like what building things? Are you into woodworking? What do you like? We would learn all this information about each other. So what would happen if I show up week one, and we sit down at the coffee shop, and I pull out my notepad, and written across the top it says, 51 things I need to know about June for him to be my friend. <laughs> so what brought you to New York? Are you married? Do you have any kids? Do you like sports? What's your favorite team? What's the last music that you listen to? Now, June might be polite and answer some of these questions. What's the chance of him showing up week two? 
right? Not real good. Hey, June, are we on for tomorrow? I had a great time last week. And he would say, oh, sorry, man. I totally forgot. Something came up. I'm busy forever. <laughs> but don't we do that to God all the time? We sit down and we've got our Bible and we've got our devotional book and we open it up and we read a little section of scripture and then we read our little devotion and then we've got some questions we need to answer and once we've answered the last question, we must be done. And sometimes I think that we leave our time with God having spent no time with God at all. The other thing that I heard said over and over again when I was younger, God has something to teach you every day. You heard that? It is not true. God does not have something to teach you every day. Now, do not hear what I am not saying. I believe God has something for you every day, but it's not a nugget of information. There, I'm guessing there are a few parents in the room, right? Are there some days when you teach your kids something? Are there days when you correct them or discipline them? Are there days when you encourage them or comfort them? Are there days when you inspire them to be more than they would be on their own? Does that all happen as a parent? Are there some days when you just bake cookies or have a movie marathon or go to the park or watch a ball game? Let me ask you, parents, are those days less valuable? No, wouldn't you say they're actually foundational? to your kids receiving your instruction, receiving your comfort, receiving your correction. So why is it that we think that every time we get together with God, he has something to teach us? Some days I think he wants us to read the Bible and just enjoy the read. It's not just the good book. It's a good book. We need to remember that and read the Bible relationally. Is there anybody here who ever struggles with their mind wandering when they read the Bible? Anybody not like to raise their hand in public? Okay. This is something I've struggled with my whole life. And as I've struggled with this, it's something that even after I internalized Philippians, even after I internalized the Gospel of John, started presenting John, knew how amazing the Bible was, I was still regularly having those times where I would just read the Bible and my mind would start to go off and I would be like, okay, I am going to start over. And I am going to focus. I am going to concentrate. Here we go. Squirrel. Right? And, then, and I had a perfectly, a, a, a particularly horrible quiet time one time that my mind was all over the place. And I was just, I finally just quit. And I was driving down the street and venting to God. God, what is wrong with me? Why can't I focus? I love you. I know your word is true. I know it's awesome. Why can't I focus? What is wrong with me? And at one point, I stopped to inhale, and he said, I'd like to talk now. <laughs> and he gave me this vision that has forever helped me with this. So as frightened as you are right now, go with me into my brain. <laughs> In this vision, I was a running back on a football team. Around the 20-yard line, had 80 yards to go, and my number had been called. I knew that I was getting the ball. I, I had done everything I was supposed to do. I had been in the weight room and at practice. I was in shape. I had memorized the playbook. I, I knew which way the quarterback was going to turn. I knew where the, where the hole was going to be that I should run through. I knew what blockers I was supposed to follow. And I had visualized the end zone. I could see six points on the board. <sighs> the whole thing. Ball gets snapped. 
quarterback turns exactly the way I'm expecting. I grab it, there's the hole exactly where I'm expecting. I start running through it, there are my blockers exactly where I'm expecting. I start running down the field, 10 yards down, 17 yards down, 29 yards down, and then bam! I get leveled. And I'm laying there, stars are going around, I'm mumbling, why am I not in the end zone? I'd like to be in the end zone. The end zone would be awesome. I pictured the end zone. This hurts. Right? <laughs> and a buddy comes over to help me up, and he hears me mumbling these questions, and he says, well, hey, man, there is somebody playing defense. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Every single time that you pick this up, there is somebody playing defense. There is somebody who's trying to actively make sure that you don't like it. Because here's the deal. I don't know that I can put it any more bluntly than this. If Satan can convince you and me that John Grisham and Karen Kingsbury and Beth Moore are better authors than God, he's won a huge battle. We need to recognize that there is a defense and we need to read strategically. Yeah, so I just, I absolutely love that point that we have to come into the scriptures every day asking for and expecting, you know, an encounter with God, right? That we want to read not just for information, but for a relationship. You know, when Elizabeth Barrett became the bride of Robert Browning, her parents uh, quickly disowned and disinherited her. They did not approve of her marriage to Robert, and they were going to go to great lengths to demonstrate the extent of their disapproval. But from the very first week of her marriage, she began to write them letters every single week. In these letters, she would ask them to please accept her and her new husband back into the family. She would, she would tell them how much she loved them and how much she missed them and how she longed to be with them again. She asked them every week to not only accept her as their daughter again, but to rejoice with her at the happiness and the life that she had found with her new husband. And she did this every single week for 10 years without getting a single reply ever. Well, it was about this time that she received a huge package in the mail. She recognized the postmark as being from her hometown, so her heart raced and she wondered, you know, could this be the moment that I've been waiting for and hoping for and praying for? But when she opened the box, it contained every letter that she'd written to her parents and each and every one was unopened and unread. And I wonder, like if her parents had even opened one of those letters, you know, perhaps they may have found a way to reconcile with their daughter and enjoy a relationship with her again. You know, and those letters that Elizabeth Barrett Browning have written have become classic literature today, having been read by hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people around the world. But what a tragedy that the people for whom they were meant, those people never opened them or never read them. 
Now listen, the Bible is the story of God, and he's the main character. But what it tells you is that he created you, and that he longs for you, that he longed for you enough to send his one and only son, and that he has sought you with such a longing, you know, that he would gladly send his son to pay the penalty for your sin, your rebellion, your wandering away from him, and that he would forgive you in a moment's notice and restore you back into his family if he had only let him. But what a tragedy that so often our Bibles lay unopened and unread, no engagement, no struggling with the God of Scripture. Friends, we miss so much when we are too busy or too preoccupied to open our Bibles. We miss a personal relationship with the God of the universe that would challenge us and confront us and disagree with us and push us and move us to be more if we would only let him. Now listen, when it comes to applying the Bible, we, we said at the beginning of this talk, right, that when it comes to the Bible, application is everything. It's everything. So I want to just walk you through uh, kind of what I would call an application 101 principle. Um, and it relates to the difference between the Old and the New Testaments. Now, uh, we're out of time. We're getting close to being out of time. So here's what I actually, what we're going to do this week. I want to walk you through, though, um, I want to set up what I'm about to say. So the reason that the Old Testament is called old is because we have a New Testament, right, that describes Jesus. And the Old Testament is also called Old because it contains something called the Old Covenant or the Old Agreement between men and God. In this case, between God and the nation of Israel, right? Whereas Jesus came to bring a New Covenant that would replace the Old Covenant the old agreement that existed between God and people, Jesus came to bring a brand new one. And so even though our Old and New Testaments, right, all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is inspired by God, it's all profitable for teaching and for correction and for training in righteousness, right? But we don't apply the Old and the New Testaments uh, in the same way. They're equally inspired, equally true, but they're not applied in the same way. So what we're going to do uh, this week is we're going to post a resource for you online. Uh, we'll have it uh, for you by Wednesday morning of next week. I, I really want to challenge you. Go to shelbychurch.org. Uh, look into that resource because it's vital. I mean, just application 101 that, um, that you apply the Old Testament in the way that a follower of Jesus should. 
from the lens of the new covenant, the new agreement with God that you and I both live under, not through the lens of the old agreement that the New Testament says has been set aside. So, uh, yeah, we want to make that available to you, and that'll be available online uh, on Wednesday. In the meantime, what we're going to do in the next few minutes is we're just going to take a few moments and, and respond to God together. Um, so you're going to note that there's a couple of different links in the live chat this morning. One link you can click if you want to give. Some of us may want to respond you know, to God in that way. There's another link as well if uh, you want to submit a prayer request, if there's um, something that you'd like us to pray with you about or for you about, even maybe if you'd like us to call you this week and pray with you over the phone. But I also want to challenge you to do something else this week as well. I want to challenge you in that live chat feed just to post a declaration as we worship. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, uh, Build My Life. It's one of my favorite worship songs. But you might post just a declaration right there on the feed uh, as you're singing that song, something along the lines of, look, I will build my life on God's Word. Or you might say something like, you know what, as for me and my family, we are going to be doers of the Word, not just hearers. Or you might say, you know what, application is everything. I'm going to apply God's Word to my life, right? So I don't know how you want to say that, but I want to challenge you. Just post that online. Post that declaration for the whole world to see. You know, that, um, that you are going to be a person who's going to be centered on God's Word by holding the Bible above you as your authority. Um, and, you know, again, our calling as a church is to help everyone not just understand the Bible, but apply it. Because when it comes to the Bible, application is everything. So let me pray for you, for us, and then we're going to worship together. Heavenly Father, we lift, up, uh, we lift you up today together. We acknowledge we need all of us, our men and women, who have minds that need regularly to be washed by the water of the Word. So God, would you purify and cleanse our hearts and our minds. God, would you speak to us out of a relationship in your Word. But God, we want to be men and women that are formed by the Word that are transformed by the Word. God, we know it's the prerequisite to a relationship with you. So just thank you that we can approach you and that you've given us uh, your Word, your breath on the page that's alive in us. So God, we give you thanks and praise. And we say together, we want to build our lives on that. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. God bless you, God.